Hello and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast from Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We are so glad you've tuned in. My name is Ryan and I'll be your host today. Our prayer as you listen to this sermon series on the final journeys of Paul in Acts is that you'll be encouraged and built up in your walk with Jesus as we study God's word together. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. We've been working through the book of Acts for a little while now. Going to be looking at the first 17 verses of Acts 21 today. I want to ask you a question, though, before we get into the passage. And the question is this. You ever had someone talk you out of doing what was the right thing to do? That you had the best of intentions. You wanted to make the right decision. You wanted to do the right thing. But someone else talked you out of doing that and into doing something else. My guess is we've all had times when that has happened. I remember in grade six, we were on a field trip to Ganaraska Forest. And in Ganaraska Forest, the end of the day was the last assignment, the last kind of activity. We had to go through the forest on the, on the path that was nicely mulched and collect things along the way. And uh, I wanted to do the right thing. But I had a friend, actually he wasn't really a friend, he was someone who, I, who was cool and I wanted to be like him. So he said, let's forget about, my good friend that I usually would hang out with, he listened and did the right thing. But this guy's like, hey, come on, let's go, let's get off the path, this is ridiculous, let's go have fun, live a little kind of idea. So we left the path and we got lost, like quickly, we got lost. And Ganarska Forest is a pretty big forest for a couple of grade six kids. We ended up making the whole class about 30 minutes late returning home because we couldn't get back. We were fully lost and we needed someone to come find us. That's how lost we were. I had the best of intentions of making the right decision, but I was talked out of it. And who bears the responsibility for that? Not, not, not my friend, but me. I bear the responsibility for that. The reality is there are so many times when we can maybe have the best of intentions and we want to pass the blame on someone else. And I can be very quick to say, and he was wrong in doing it, but it's not his fault. It's ultimately my fault for making that decision that I made. The reality is we have... We know who Satan is. We know that he has methods and schemes that he uses to try to get us to make the wrong decision, to tempt us to make a decision that we know we shouldn't make. But he does it so often, so subtly. And I've mentioned this book before. It's by a Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks. It's a book, it's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in it, he, na- he kind of names out, he kind of makes you aware of a number of schemes the devil uses to get us to make the decision we know we shouldn't make. One of those things he mentions is, this is how Satan tempts us, this is how Satan gets us to do something we shouldn't do, by presenting the bait, but hiding the hook. Presenting the bait, seeing the short-term pleasure of grabbing it, but hiding the long-term misery that comes with it. Just like any fisherman knows, you want to hide the hook the best you can so that fish doesn't know that the hook is there. So that when the fish bites, thinking, oh, that's a good snack for me, you catch them. And the long-term misery of that fish ensues once he grabs a hold of that. So by presenting the bait, hiding the hook. Another one of the schemes of Satan is by painting sin with virtue's colors. Meaning making sin out to be something, kind of painting it, covering it up, so that it looks more appealing to you. So that it looks more attractive to you. He does this all the time. And you can think about how 
this plays out in our own lives, that we ourselves can kind of convince ourselves that something that we should know is sinful, it's probably okay. Like, I'm not a gossip, I just really care about people. I'm, I'm not proud, I'm just the only one who works hard around here. We paint it with virtue's colors even though these things are wrong. I, I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. And we can see how Satan kind of subtly does this. We justify sin by painting it with virtue's colors. The third one that he mentions here is by representing to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by others walking in sin. So we look at the lives of others who are far from Jesus and we look at their lives and say, wow, look at how happy they are. Look at all the stuff that they have. And you look at their social media pages and you start to covet that. And you start to think, well, maybe obedience to the Lord is not worth it. Maybe it doesn't really pay off to play by the rules. And we can get deceived very subtly into sinning, into making a decision that we know we shouldn't, well, that we should know we shouldn't make, but end up doing it. And we say, might as well do it. Obedience maybe doesn't pay off. And this can happen so, so subtly. We have an enemy who is sneaking around like a roaring lion, but he's very deceptive in what he does. And sometimes we ourselves in the church, we can buy into certain subtle lies that lead us to living in a way that we shouldn't be living. And one of those things that sometimes we buy into is, and, and even though we can affirm it with our minds that this isn't true, we often buy into it by the way we live or by the way we counsel others, and that's this. When you follow Jesus, everything's going to go well for you. And we buy into this so often that Jesus is not going to lead us into a place where it is dangerous or where it is hard, where hardships are going to ensue for me because surely he wants what's best for me. And so he's not going to lead me there. And we start to believe that just little by little. And we say, well, God surely isn't calling me there or you to that dangerous people group. Because you'll just go there and die. It's dangerous for you to go. And we slowly just begin to worship safety before the Lord. We're going to see in our passage today the answer to a question I want to throw out to you right now. Do you think it is possible for you to be completely obedient to the Lord but have the church try to stop you? Is it possible for you to be obedient, to want to pursue obedience to what God calls us to, but have some in the church try to stop you from doing that? History is filled with examples of where that has happened. And our passage today in Acts 21 is going to answer that question for us. So let's work through it together. Acts chapter 1. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter 21, verse 1. So this is Paul who has just spent time with the Ephesian elders. He's left them. There was great weeping. 
It's hard to say goodbye. Verse 1 of 21 says, And when we parted from them, and that word parted, it doesn't even do justice to the word. It means like, tor- like being torn apart from them. You know when you're saying bye to a loved one, they're leaving, maybe they're leaving for a couple of years, you're not going to see them for a while. Ola, you were just visiting family in Nigeria. It's very hard to say goodbye in those times, is it not? It's like you're being pulled away. You know you need to go, but it's like being torn apart. And that's, that's really what that word is carrying, for, carrying uh, the, kind of the meaning behind it, that word. Parted from them, he set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, we went aboard and set sail. So it's kind of very quick, place after place after place. And it's kind of Luke giving us the idea that Paul was in a bit of a hurry to get to Jerusalem. We know that he wanted to get there by Pentecost. So he went here to here to here to here. Just kind of giving us that hint that this is what is happening. Verse 3 goes on. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. That's a lot of cargo to unload. He stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, you may have, if you have an NASB, you have a little footnote in the bottom. And it says something along the lines of, because of impressions by the Spirit or impressions given by the Spirit, they were urging him not to go. And that's more of the idea That's being carried forward here with that language of through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to to Jerusalem. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed, we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. What, what, What strikes me here is he's only been there for seven days. And there is this deep-rooted love, this deep friendship that ensues after just seven days. It's incredible to see the bonds that can uh, ensue after just seven days of ministry life together. He spends seven days with them. They go to the beach. All of the family goes. The, the, The wives and the children all go. So you get this beautiful picture of the fellowship that happens among believers. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, when you share Jesus Christ in common with someone else, there is an immediate sense of this is my family. And it's a beautiful thing to experience that. I experienced that with, in all over the place, many places in the world where I've been. Just this kind of instant family, this instant friendship that ensues because we share the one thing that matters in common, the one person that matters in common, Jesus Christ. And so after seven days, they have this deep friendship with each other. Goes on, verse 7. You can even see it's it's hard for him to leave. But he finally leaves. He goes on, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Now, why didn't he stay at the Best Western? See this time and time again. That wherever you go, especially Middle Eastern hospitality, we're seeing a picture of that here. Wherever you go, as a believer, you're instantly welcomed into their home. Even if you're not a believer, they'll welcome you into their home. This beautiful hospitality that ensues. In fact, hotels and inns were often used for kind of shady purposes in those days. You could go into just about any village and someone's going to welcome you into their home because of Middle Eastern hospitality, which speaks into the Christmas story, but that's for another day. 
Stayed with them for one day. This fellowship ensued. It just welcomes in. But on the next day, verse 8, on the next day we departed, we came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, why mention that? doesn't say anything about what they prophesied, but why is he mentioning that? He's going to get into another prophet in a second. But why mention that he had four unmarried women, uh, daughters, who prophesied. He's giving, he's reminding us of the prophet Joel, Joel 2.28, that your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is a fulfillment of Joel 2.28 that Luke is reminding us. This is what's happening as the church begins to flourish here. We're seeing the unfolding, the, 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 the unfolding of what Joel had said in Joel 2.28. Now, there's a, that's a great note here. It almost sounds like this, is, this, this happened and this happened and this happened. And we can kind of miss the significance of what's being said if we read it too quickly. And I've read this so many times and I kind of missed it. But reflecting on it this week, Luke makes very clear to say he's one of the seven. Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, welcomes Paul and his companions into their home. Who was also one of the seven who was stoned to death? Stephen. Stephen and Philip would have been close friends, undoubtedly, after doing ministry together as those first deacons that we see in Acts chapter 6. Stephen would have been very good friends with Philip. Who was overseeing the persecution of Stephen but Saul, Paul here? And now what we are seeing is him welcome who one time was his enemy into his home in fellowship. And it's this beautiful picture of what the gospel does that brings former enemies and makes them friends. It takes former enemies and makes them family, where you show hospitality to them. And it's a beautiful picture that we see all the time. When I'm in Nigeria and I get to train the pastors there, these pastors are from different tribes and they're in different groups in Nigeria. And at one time, these groups and tribes were almost like enemies to each other. But when they come together to study the gospel together, they become friends. That those tribal boundaries no longer exist for a child of God. And this beautiful picture here of what the gospel does, of takes enemies and makes them friends. Here's the sad reality that's happening in our world today. That we have churches who are doing the exact opposite. Who are looking at other churches who should be brothers and sisters in Christ and calling them enemies. And it's the exact opposite of what's happening And it's over silly things like your response to COVID-19. The beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is former enemies become friends. And we get this beautiful picture of that here with Philip. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This guy is dramatic. Wait to see what he does. This is a guy who doesn't just say, hey, I think the Lord is telling me to say this to you. Look what he does. Thus says the Lord. Uh, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he doesn't just say, hey, Paul, there's trouble coming when you go into Jerusalem. He puts a whole display on. He, he takes the belt and says, whoever owns this belt, everyone knows it's Paul's, but he's one of those, like a, a line of the Old Testament prophets, right? You've seen some of the Old Testament prophets who did some pretty crazy things. 
Isaiah, who went around naked and barefoot for three years, is one of those things where you're like, really? Could you not, you really have to do that? Ezekiel, who drew, Ezekiel, I think it was, who drew Jerusalem on a clay tablet and started beating on it. Very dramatic display. And so this Agabus is from the line of those kinds of prophets. Thus says the Lord, whoever owns this belt, there's bad things coming for you in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so stay away. Thus says the Holy Spirit, the one who goes into Jerusalem, whose belt is this, are going to experience hard times. Going to be bound, going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So you shouldn't go. Never says that. But look at how it gets interpreted. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So we have now two examples of believers, missionaries, the church, who says to Paul, and we know from last week in Acts chapter 20, Paul saying he's headed to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God compels him to go. He knows that the Lord wants him to go to Jerusalem. And now he has two places where the church is saying, don't go urging him not to go. And the example, that first example of the time when he was in Tyre, it actually is written in the present tense. So when it said that they were telling him not to go, that's present tense, and it was, which means they, they, they kept telling him all week long, hey, don't go. Morning time, don't go. Lunch time, don't go, Paul. Evening, don't go. Why did they not want him to go? Why did Luke, and Luke includes himself here in this, he says we in verse 10, not verse 10, sorry, we in verse 12. When we heard this, so Luke includes himself. Why, was they, why were they telling Paul not to go? Because it wasn't safe for him to go. They were well-meaning. They loved Paul dearly. They interpreted the Holy Spirit telling them, telling Paul and telling the others that trouble awaits Paul if he goes into Jerusalem. They interpreted that to mean, so he's telling us to tell you not to go. So you shouldn't go. So they were taking it as a prediction rather than preparation. And the reality is we know from the scriptures, Jesus said, if you follow me, things are going to be hard for you. They're going to hate you like they hated me. You follow the way of Jesus and people are going to start treating you the way they treated Jesus, which if you read through the Gospels was not very good all the time. So it doesn't mean when you give your life to Jesus, things are going to be hard for you, so don't give your life to Jesus. That wasn't the purpose of that. The purpose of that was to prepare you for what is ahead. And that's what the Holy Spirit was doing with Paul. He was preparing Paul for what was ahead. But then there are believers who were driven by something else. They were driven by their love and care for him, but they were driven by safety. They didn't want him to go because it wasn't safe for him to go. Is it possible today that that same kind of thing could still be happening among us? That someone wanting to be obedient to the Lord is actually finding resistance to do that from the church because it's not safe for them to go. 
I mentioned before history is filled with these examples. Uh, many of you know the story of Jim Elliott. I was reading this week, I was sharing with prayer meeting the, uh, a book that I got to put in the library. It's called Shadow of the Almighty. It's the journal entries of Jim Elliott and the prayers of Jim Elliott that his wife put together into a book form. Uh, Jim Elliott, if you're not aware, he was uh, a young man. At the, he was a man who was a linguistics major incredibly gifted when it came to linguistics and and, uh, translation of the scriptures. And he he knew the Lord was calling him into the jungles of Ecuador. But time and time again, the church was saying to him, and this came out when I was reading uh, this book, time and time again, the church was saying to him, you can't go, don't go. You're too gifted to go. You're just going to go and die. We need you here. There are young people here that need to learn from you how to do linguistics. You need to stay here. It's like, I'm called to the Alcas. I'm called to the people in Ecuador and living in the jungles. And the church tried to stop them. You know the story, Jim Elliott, and there's four other missionaries who go with him. And they end up making contact with this tribal people who were fierce savages who had killed everyone else that had tried to make contact with them. And they, they did an incredible job over a long period of time establishing friendship with them from their plane. It's it just incredible to read through some of that. And they end up landing and, and becoming friends with some of them for a couple of days. And yet they get caught up in this kind of Alka lie that ensues and they spear them to death. Gives his life. They give their lives. And they had guns. They chose not to fire them. They fired them up in the air is what it sounded like. But that was all. Was that a waste of a life? Should he not have gone because that happens? That story ended up and still does today inspire thousands, if not millions of people to give their life for the cause of Christ sacrificially, to go into hard places. And if you know the end of the story, the story doesn't end there. The story ends with uh, some of the women, a sister, a Nate Saint's sister, I think it was, and Jim Elliott's wife, who go back into this tribal group and end up becoming friends with them, end up leading them to Christ. And today, Christ reigns supreme among the Alcas. So we can praise God that the church couldn't stop Jim Elliott. story of David Livingston was virtually the same kind of story. If you know David Livingston, the missionary who went into inland Africa, The church tried to stop him from going over and over and over again. And yet he still went. And he went, and one of the first things that happened to him when he was mauled by a lion, not really a good start, and he suffered through malaria, suffered through cholera, suffered through unnamed issues and problems that, that kind of ensued after he went. And yet he went freely and openly and excitedly to share the gospel there. And there was a time, there's a story told with David Livingston. He came back to, at one point to this much fanfare because he had made contact with so many African people and the, the churches welcomed him. Politicians welcomed him. They celebrated his return. Then he went back to Africa again. But this time, just kind of started to die. The fanfare started to die. People didn't know where, where he was, anything like that. So they sent in someone to go try to find him. 
This reporter goes in, is able to find him. There's a famous quote that's something along the lines of Dr. Livingston, I presume. And they said to, to, to David Livingston, they said, come on back to the United States. There are people there that want to honor you, people there that want to celebrate you. Come on back to the United States. And he said, God has called me to Africa and I'm staying here. I'm not leaving here. So we can praise God that the church couldn't stop David Livingston. David Livingston inspired a number of people to give their lives for the sake of Christ. William Carey went into India. William Carey was in a group uh, with a number of pastors before he went. And he said, I've... Uh, I'm going to go to Africa, I'm going to, I'm going to go to India, and I'm going to share the gospel there. And one, one of the other uh, pastors there, who was a bit older, stood up, and he said, I want to read this quote because I don't want to get it wrong. He said, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen in India, he will do so without consulting you or me. Kerry couldn't be persuaded. He went into India, and now there are thousands of churches planted as a result of William Kerry's work. We praise God that that clergyman and others in the church could not stop William Kerry from going. One of, the one, one of the people that was inspired by William Kerry was Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson went into, Burmy, into Burma and among Buddhist Burmese people, and he shared the gospel there. And he suffered through, he served there for 38 years. He suffered through terrible diseases. Many of those things took the life of his, he had a number of wives, not all at the same time, and some of his children. And yet he continued to serve there faithfully. And today it is estimated that there are half a million believers represented in the churches that were planted by Adoniram Judson in Buddhist Burma. Have you heard of John Patton? Not the general John Patton, but the missionary John Patton. Anyone ever heard of him just out of curiosity? Some of you have. He was a pastor in Scotland, served there for 10 years. And the Lord, he, he believed with all his heart, the Lord was leaving, leading him to go into the Pacific Islands to reach the cannibals there, to reach cannibalistic people. And he had so much resistance. In fact, there was one older man who kept the same line every week as he was preparing to go. This older man would come to him and say, cannibals, there's cannibals. They will eat you if you go there. Finally, John Patton wrote back and he said to him, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years and your own body will soon be laid in the ground, and it will be eaten there by worms. You know where it's going. I confess you that if I but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me either whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours. You can see the determination the willingness to surrender his will to the will of God, despite the opposition he got from some in the church. And we can praise God today that the church couldn't stop John Patton because a few years after this point, he was able to put in the hands of cannibals the bread and the cup of our Lord and celebrate the Lord's Supper with former cannibals who had trusted Christ alone for their salvation.
History is filled with stories of people who were led by the Holy Spirit to go into lands that God had laid on their heart, but they were hard, and they knew hardships were going to come, and so many in the church tried to stop them. Just like we see with Paul here, well-intentioned, well-meaning people. Not, no one meant harm by any of them. The man who was saying, cannibals, cannibals, he loved that pastor. He wanted that pastor to be safe. He was well-intentioned, but when we let safety be the driving factor, we hinder God gospel growth. We see it with Paul. We see it with story after story. The story of John Patton. He was a pastor in Scotland for 10 years, I mentioned. They tried to almost like bribe him to stay. They said, you name the salary and we'll let you stay. We'll pay it if you stay. So get what the question from that church was. If you stay, if you do what we want, we'll pay your salary. If you surrender to what the Lord wants, you're on your own. It's a dangerous place for a church to be, to stop a man or a woman who is led by God to go into that place that God has called them to. Paul, in verse 15, goes on to say, after all of this happens, verse 15, after these days, oh, sorry, I, I, I can't, I didn't get to verse 13 yet. That's like the best part. I, I skipped that part. So verse 12, let me read that again. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? And I love his response. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I, I was reading that this week and I, I, I laughed out loud. I don't usually laugh out loud when I'm reading on my own and no one's around. But it actually made me smile that much. What are you doing? Breaking my heart. This is where the Lord has led me. This is, I want to go to Jerusalem because the Lord has led me there. I have this offering I want to give. I love my fellow brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I want to share Christ with them. What are you doing? Breaking my heart, telling me not to go. We can break the heart of young people among us when we tell them to be safe rather than sacrifice it all for the sake of the gospel. Breaking the heart of Paul. Listen to what Paul says. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to be imprisoned. I'm willing to die to make much of Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased, Luke included, and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That's a great line, and I pray is the motto of every one of our lives, that every one of us would say, let the will of the Lord be done. In my life, through the words that I say, and the actions I take, may the will of the Lord be done. After these days, verse 15, we got up, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So again, more hospitality just everywhere through this. When we had come, verse 17, to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And that's where we're going to stop for today. He gets to Jerusalem and has a bit of a, a welcome home party. Has a, they welcome him gladly, but things are about to go sour just as was prophesied. Now, let me just quickly go over four principles out of this. Four principles when it comes to obedience 
and when it comes to uh, surrendering our wills to the will of the Lord. Number one is this, love others, but love Jesus more. Love others, love people, but put Jesus first. Love him above all else. Jesus himself said, unless you hate your brother or sister, cannot be my disciple. He's not saying to literally hate them. He's saying your love for Jesus should be a lot stronger and bigger than your love for others. So do life together. Love others. Love them sacrificially. Love them well. But don't be a people pleaser. Be a Jesus pleaser. So love Jesus, love others more. Number two, value the counsel of others, but surrender your will to the Lord. We see throughout the scriptures the importance of others speaking into your life, of other godly people giving you counsel. And it's often through the counsel of godly people that you're able to discern where it is that the Lord is leading you. It's often by the counsel of godly people that God uses to kind of lead you in a certain direction. He did it in my own life many times. We need to value that. The scriptures are clear on that, to value the wisdom of of those who are older among us, speaking into the younger. Those are important principles to keep in mind. However, if the counsel of others is leading us into a place of disobedience, is leading us into a place to value safety above sacrifice, that's when we need to guard ourselves from that to receive the counsel we get to others, but, but, but surrender our will to the Lord. Number three, be wise in your decisions, but don't let safety be what drives you. So be wise in the decisions that you make. But let's think in terms of what is the most wise thing to do with your life. What is the most logical conclusion that we should arrive to as believers? If we have a God, and if we have a God, we do have a God who is sovereign over all, right? We have a God who loved us that he sent Jesus to the cross to die for us. We have a God who says he's working all things together for good. We have a God who loves us, who adopted us into his family, who knows how our lives are going to be lived best, right? So what's the most logical conclusion? To live by the commands that he's given to us, to live by the the instructions that God has given to us. Because if, if that's all true, then he knows what's best for us to live. So we surrender our lives to that. The most logical, the most wise decision we can make is to surrender our life to his will. Surrender his life to the calling that he's given to us and the commands he's given to us. So be wise in your decisions, but then don't let safety be your priority. So sometimes we, we, we can't be foolish. That's what I mean by that. We can't just be foolish. We can't just go into a place knowing that we shouldn't go there. So we have to guard ourselves from, from making foolish decisions. We need to be wise, but we cannot let safety be that first priority in our life. When we let safety be the first priority, we end up... When we treasure safety and comfort and ease above all else, we become more like the world than we do like Jesus. And then number four, and this one doesn't follow the same pattern as the others, but I think this is an important principle. You can write this one on your fridge, write this one, uh, stick it on your phone. Final principle is this. Worse than dying is living for what doesn't matter. 
We see that straight up with Paul here who says, last week he he said very clearly in in chapter 20, I consider my life worth no value to me except to live for the purpose by which Jesus has called me to. And so this kind of principle that we see now lived out here when he says, I'm willing to die, I'm willing to be in prison, I'm willing to die. It's this idea that worse than dying is living for that which doesn't matter. D.L. Moody has a great quote. D.L. Moody's quote says, my greatest fear is not failure. My greatest fear is succeeding at things that do not matter. Worse than dying is living our lives, spending our lives for the sake of that which just doesn't matter in the big scheme of things and for the sake of eternity. Worse than dying is not giving my life for the sake of the one who gave his life for me. So Paul is saying here, worse than dying is not living surrendered to my king. Life is short. The time on this earth is limited. Some of you who are a bit older in years, you're getting towards the end of that life and you're looking back over your life and thinking, wow, that went by fast. I can see some heads being knotted. Life is short. God has placed us here for a time, for a season. So let's commit our lives to living for him, for that which will matter all of eternity. The big scheme of things, remember that rope illustration? Our time on this earth is a small bit of the rope. The rest of the rope wraps all around this room, around and around and around. Our time on this earth is this compared to eternity. So let's live our lives for that which matters for all eternity. Worse than dying is living for that which just simply doesn't matter. I think in the end, we simply need to do this. Choose obedience. We can learn from Paul here. Let's choose to be obedient to where the Lord is leading us. And we know where the Lord is leading us when we look to his word. There are several times in the word that just simply says, for this is God's will for you. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. It's God's will that you be sanctified. We don't have to wonder, hey, what does God want from me? He tells us in his word. And so we live seeking to be obedient to the word of God, but in the end, we trust the results to God. We let the will of the Lord be done. We pursue obedience. Let's leave the results to the Lord. Take my life, let it be, Lord, fully consecrated to thee. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless.